I'm Damian Bulwa, and this is Fifth and Mission. It was a little more than a week ago when, according to authorities, an 18-year-old white man murdered 10 black people in a grocery store in Buffalo, New York. He targeted that store because of its location in a predominantly black neighborhood. We're going to talk today about how the shooter's targeted killing of black people is being felt here in the Bay Area, and why it's important here in Buffalo and everywhere. The killer who wore body armor and filmed his attack had written a long screed justifying his violence and hate by citing the so-called Great Replacement. That's a racist conspiracy theory that says white people in America are being replaced by non-white immigrants to dilute their power. This conspiracy theory is not new in this country. In fact, it's been touted often by people like Fox News host Tucker Carlson. I have less political power because they're importing a brand new electorate. Why should I sit back and take that? But it's a particularly dangerous lie. As the journalist Adam Serwer wrote in The Atlantic, any political cause can theoretically inspire terrorism. But this one is unlike others in that what it demands of its targets is their non-existence. Celestine Cheney, Hayward Patterson, Oaklanders gathered last week at a vigil to remember those lost to the white supremacist violence, whose names were read one by one. We pour this libation today because we never want their memory to be forgotten. I'm here because I believe that the answer lies with the people. I think that it's going to come from people mobilizing and deciding that community defense rooted in mercy is the only way forward. For some at the vigil, the violence really hit home. It felt personal. Those people that were shot in Buffalo, those could have been me. It could have been anybody. It could have been classmates of mine, my cousins, aunties. I mean, we hear it all the time, but for some reason that just really struck a chord that it is us that is being attacked. As Dr. King once said, we were all bound together in an immutable garment of destiny, and what happens to one person happens to all of us. So even though this event took place in Buffalo, it still impacts us. My first guest on this show was at that vigil. He's Justin Phillips, a columnist at The Chronicle who focuses on race and equality. And in his latest column at sfchronicle.com, he laments that we're having to talk about replacement theory while saying that we need to understand the insidious thinking behind it. Later in the episode, we'll hear from the organizer of the vigil, Kat Brooks. She's a community leader focused on ending police abuse and violence and is the co-host of Upfront on KPFA. But first, my conversation with columnist Justin Phillips. Justin, thank you so much for joining me. I want to ask you about your initial reaction when you first heard the news about what happened in Buffalo and about the circumstance that it was a, a white man who went in with racist motivations to kill black people. Thanks for having me, man. I honestly, my first reaction was anger. You know, it's hard to see any way around that. It's hard to feel any different way, but it was being angry about the circumstances, being angry about the loss of life, and being angry over the fact that these white supremacist views can compel someone to, you know, commit such a, an atrocious act. It's just, it's frustration, it's disappointment, it's sadness, but beneath all of that is just, you know, the knee-jerk response is just to be angry. Like, how could something like this happen? Justin, I know that we obviously get surprised when a shooting like this happens, but for you, you write about the political landscape, you write about the Black experience in the Bay Area, 
and the United States. I mean, how do you register this? Were you surprised? So, no, <laughs> is, the, is the short answer. I think you're always surprised by the scope of what happens. But for someone to be that angry, for someone to harbor those kind of views, like that's not surprising. Like in, in my pieces of kind of documented this turn that America's had over the last couple of years. We've all been aware of it since 2016. And even if you read the manifesto that was posted online, the Buffalo Killer started researching these white supremacist views in May 2020 at the start, which you know coincided with the start of the George Floyd protests. And I always talk about this uh, national backlash that follows civil rights movement. So it, it fits into that trend where over two years, someone would get angrier and angrier. And you've seen over the last two years nationally and politically, you know, this kind of pushback over that movement that happened that year. All right. I want to talk a little bit about that backlash in a bit. But first, I want to ask you about what you've done since the shooting. You attended this vigil in Oakland last week. People felt the need to come together to honor the victims, but also needed to be together and talk about it. What, what was that like? You know, it's one of those situations where there is a uh, black community in Oakland, a group of black activists, community leaders that know after a tragic event like this, you need those kind of spaces to grieve, to process trauma. So they had a vigil in Oakland the other day that I went to, and it was moving in its own way. There's obviously a vibe of frustration, but there is an element of black resilience, black joy that not so much hides underneath it, but shapes an event like that. And yeah, I thought I thought it was important to go to. I honestly I expected there to be probably more events like that, but you know, I'm really glad that that I was able to attend one. I'm struck by that black joy. I mean, this is a vigil after one of the worst acts of terrorism in modern history. I mean, why do people feel the need to come together and and express their joy? Somebody told me that the best way to explain it, they were like, you can't combat hate in this country with rage or more aggression. Like you have to be able to get into a place where you show your resiliency. And there's something that I've been told in writing about this as well, where for someone like the killer in Buffalo to be compelled to do what they did. It's a response to movements that black people have led in this country when it comes to calling for, you know, social justice, when it comes for anything that's equity related over the last two years. It, it's a response to that progress. It's an absolute tragedy what happened. That response is also tied to progress that black people have made of bringing social justice issues to the forefront in the country. So it's this weird space to navigate where you're really frustrated about what happened, but you know, like it's an element of white fragility where this person was so upset about how black people are trying to push this country forward that they want to go do this. And you have to navigate between being filled with rage and also knowing that there is much more work left to do and you can't be put off or afraid of something like this. Justin, let's talk about this conspiracy theory, replacement theory. I mean, we've talked before about essentially the idea that you wish we didn't have to talk about these things. We wish that they weren't part of the dialogue. And yet in your writing and, and at this event that you attended, it was being discussed and you said, OK, let's let's discuss it. Tell me about the tension there. Honestly, we know that right wing media has tried to push this theory into a national conversation. You know, we've seen people like Tucker Carlson and former President Donald Trump talked about this replacement theory of 
black people, brown people, immigrants replacing white people and shifting the country in a more liberal focus, replacing white voters and advancing a democratic agenda. And having conversations with people at this vigil, you know, before it and during it about that theory itself, it's just illogical. Like the white supremacists that believe in this theory, the country that they're trying to preserve wouldn't exist without immigrants. And I think Fox News has done a great job of pushing this into the mainstream. And I think the reaction isn't what they expected because people who might not have thought about it, it gives them time to unpack it and realize this is complete lunacy. You do make a lot of connections, though. I think for some people, they might have not heard of this before, They at least the words replacement theory. But it's important in your writing to connect the threads back through California and U.S. history. Yeah, I mean, nothing that we talk about now hasn't been present before, like the white replacement theory or white genocide, you know, the fear of that as America was emerging from slavery, where white people were afraid that at some point black folks were going to rise up and revolt and there would be a race war and they would be killed during it. Like this replacement theory has existed for centuries. It's just been repackaged and rebranded. And nowadays it exists online and it's consumable for more audiences. You have people on TV who talk about it. So it's always existed. You know, we've seen vestiges of this in California and America is familiar with it. Maybe the phrasing is new to some people, but just this idea of a master race in this country trying to do everything it can to preserve itself and remain that way. Like, it's been consistent throughout history. And the message, as you've written, is that some people belong and some people don't. And some people, when they feel threatened, see themselves as the group that's supposed to have the power. Right. It's just this idea of equality somehow undermines white privilege or white status. And the most American thing for America to do is to become more diverse and more open and more understanding to have a, you know, more diverse population. That is what America does. And then you have people that are just absolutely terrified of it. They're terrified of what America is naturally going to become. And it's an illogical thing to be afraid of. Justin, if white replacement theory is essentially a fear of people of color gaining more power in society, do you see hints of that fear in the Bay Area? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I mean, look, the Bay Area is a place where it's obviously left-leaning, so it's more nuanced because you have a lot of moderates who now are shifting more toward right leaning thinking, you know, they're getting more conservative when it comes to criminal justice issues. And you can kind of see hints of that fear there where people don't want to give time for uh, criminal justice efforts to bake in and make a difference. Right. Or you might see it in, you know, California's leading conversations around reparations. You might see that fear and how people respond to conversations about reparations, where it doesn't have a ton of support nationally, obviously, but in California, too, where a lot of moderates will say that they aren't into that idea or they don't think that they owe black people anything. So there are these topics where you can see a little bit of that fear where there is a prioritization of a uh, specific black issue and then there's a lack of support for it. So you're saying that when people look at some of these proposed changes, they might not just say, hey, I don't like that from a policy perspective. They may also think, hey, wait, I'm seeing the balance of power shift here. Exactly. Like You always have to strip down everything to the core 
concern, right? Like, even if you take criminal justice reform and efforts that focus on decarceration or alternatives to incarceration, like, it's an understanding of black and brown plight. It's an understanding of decades of mistreatment that they've received, and it's trying to prioritize that. So even if someone's like, whoa, you know, I, I, I don't agree with it, strip everything away. What is it that you don't agree with? If the central premise is to prioritize this black and brown issue and you're in against it, like clearly there's an underlying fear there, right? And so I think that's kind of where you see it. You have to look closely out here because you're not going to run into folks who are just going to be like, oh, yeah, I'm a right-wing conspiracy theorist. And there probably aren't that, <laughs> that many out here, but there are moderates who, without realizing it, might embrace some of those ideals. Justin Phillips, thank you so much. Thanks, Damien. After this short break, we're going to hear from Kat Brooks, the founder of the Anti-Police Terror Project, and she was the co-organizer of that vigil for the victims of the Buffalo shooting that we talked about. We'll be right back. You're listening to Fifth Admission. You can support the newsroom that creates this podcast by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. He was groomed by a country. That says white supremacist violence against black bodies is an American way of life. He was not radicalized online. He is as American as apple pie. You better say it. Kat Brooks, thanks for joining me on Fifth and Mission. Kat, we just heard a quote from you. It was from last week's vigil for the victims of the Buffalo shooting. You talked about how this white supremacist shooter wasn't just radicalized online, but that the theory that drove him, this great replacement theory and other racist viewpoints are very foundational in this country. Can you expand on what you mean by that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think if you go back to the, you know, the foundation of of this country, the birth of America, which was about eradicating you know, the indigenous people that were already here and subjugating anybody of color in order to maintain white dominance. And that that thread has um, maintained itself through all of our history, right? I mean, if you, you let's, you know, the, uh, the KKK, white supremacist Nazi movements, all of that has been about white dominance, maintaining white dominance and eradicating anything not white. And that gets reinforced in the way that the social and cultural fabric plays out in America, who has the privilege, who has the wealth, who has the power, uh, versus who lives in the most dire conditions, whose housing insecure, whose food insecure, whose bodies do not matter, right? And and we are told in every possible way in this country that, that black bodies and, and brown bodies and indigenous bodies, for that matter, aren't important, are able to be discarded. And so America grooms, as I said, uh, at the vigil white supremacist thought, and white supremacist thought leads to white supremacist violent action. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about some people trying to view a situation like this as a one-off. This is a unique situation. This is, a, this is one thing that happened. But, but you don't agree with that, obviously. Absolutely not, right? And we've, we've spent a lot of time, as we should, talking about the rise in hate crimes against our Asian uh, American relatives, right? And that has been truly horrific. There has also been a rise in hate crimes against black bodies, and and actually the largest rise in hate crimes has been against black bodies. In 2020, over half of the hate crimes that were reported, right, we know that what's reported is less than what actually happens, um, were against black bodies. 
white supremacist violence against black people happens every single day in this country. It just does not make headlines. And so it's important to put Buffalo within that context, right? And understand that it is a continuum of a trend that is happening in this country that should scare all of us. So locally, Kat, you you are obviously always talking to people. They are reacting to the shooting all week, very personally. What were people saying? How were they feeling about it? How was it hitting them? I mean, people are devastated, right? Even myself, and, and I was surprised actually at how hard it hit me because of what I do for a living. You know, I, I traffic in the business of Black death every day. But I think that there was something about this shooting, and, 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 I, and I think it's the elders, right? A lot of people are talking about, these were our elders, our grannies. And particularly in the Black community, the granny is the matriarch of our family, right, who, who nurtures us, um, you know, as we saw the impact of the war on drugs and our mothers and fathers got funneled into prisons. The grannies were the ones that held our family together. And so I, a, a lot of talk about the grannies. And I think that's why um, it was particularly devastating. And though Oakland <laughs> is is a city of resistance and a city of resilience, right? And so there was the the grief but equally present in everybody I've talked to has been the energy of resistance and, and needing to unite, right, um, across race, across creed, across class to fight what's happening in this country. And it's happening here. Like, people should not get it twisted. White supremacy is on the rise in the Bay Area as well, right? We pushed back on it pretty hard in 2015, but they are still here and they are still active. Kat, the work that you do is often in intervening in the community in making sure that there is not violence and dealing in the aftermath of, of violence. Did did your work frame how you viewed what happened in Buffalo? Absolutely. I think people, because mostly people hear me talk about right police violence in particular, that there's an assumption that it's a narrow lens for me, but it's absolutely not. I do the work I do because I love black people, right? And I put state violence inside of a much larger umbrella. It's not just police. It's all of the ways, which I talked about earlier, right? It's all of the ways that war is waged against black life. And the reason why state violence exists is because white supremacy is the dominant um, ideology in this country. So it absolutely framed the way I saw Buffalo. I see all of it as connected, right? And we've got to fight against all of it on all of the fronts. And what should people do when they see people actually propagating messages like this? There was a group of people that actually almost celebrated the, sh- the shooting in the Bay Area that came out with signs and people reacted. On Fox News, you heard a lot of people explaining away replacement theory and, and actually supporting it, even in the aftermath of the shooting. Call it out, call it out, call it out, call it out, right? In every which way you can. Do not put yourself in harm's way. I'm not saying walk up to a white supremacist and confront them. These are violent people, right? But but call it out. We've got social media platforms. You can post flyers. People love next door. Like use next door to call out white supremacy instead of reporting black people who you think look suspicious in your neighborhood, right? Force your electeds to take a stand. Talk to the media, push media to tell these stories and call out these people that are lurking in the shadows, right? Because when they emerge, they are going to emerge with violence. But if they know that there's a community united that will not stand for this, that is on the lookout, that is ready to fight back and push back, it makes it that much more less likely that they're going to have the audacity, the nerve to bring violence into our neighborhoods. Kat, given this climate, are you hopeful? (laughs) 
that's, I have to stay hopeful or I couldn't get up in the morning and do the work that I do. I do think that we're backsliding. I do see these, these mass shootings that are, you know, racially motivated as modern day lynchings. And we do see them increasing. I am concerned that we live in a country like people are celebrate the fact, you know, that Biden beat Trump. But the piece that people don't talk about is still 70 million Americans voted for hate. Right. And, and what does that say? And this may sound weird. I'm hopeful, though, that the mask has been ripped off. Right. Like that's actually what I was grateful for Trump about is that it allowed folks that have sort of been hiding because they knew it wouldn't be tolerated, right, to, to, to emerge and to show us who they really are. And I, I would much rather know who you are and what you stand for because then I can make a plan about how to fight you, right, than you pretending that you are one thing, but really you're another. So that actually does give me hope. I, I think that we're going to be able to chart a better strategy, right, to eradicating this kind of ugliness out of our country. And I do think that most people, most people want a world with it where everyone can thrive. I really do. I think people struggle with what it means in terms of what they have to give up in terms of their privilege, et cetera, right? I think people have work to do. But I think most of us want a world with it where everybody thrives. So, yeah, I, I, I'm still hopeful. Cat Brooks, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks to my guest today, Justin Phillips, a columnist at the San Francisco Chronicle, and also Kat Brooks, founder of the Anti-Police Terror Project. Thanks to Karen Creighton for producing this episode, and thank you for listening. <laughs>